Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us to become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Regular listeners to the program know that we do a weekly news roundup every Friday. That's the episode that I co-host with Natasha Smith. But these Ministry Watch extra episodes that we publish midweek are a chance for us to go deep, you might say, with our editorial partners. That's why I'm I'm really pleased to have back on the program Paul Gladder. Paul is the editor-in-chief at Religion Unplugged and the director of the journalism program at the King's College in New York City. His journalism experience includes a long tenure with the Wall Street Journal. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Warren. Well, you know, Paul, the Museum of the Bible has been in the news um, for the last couple of years, really. I know we've done stories about them in the past. Uh, They've had some problems with authenticity and the provenance of some of their artifacts. Uh, We've, like I say, we've reported on that. But you had some new reporting on Museum of the Bible this week. What can you tell us? Yeah, Warren, our our correspondent in Jerusalem, Gil Zohar, uh, had a great source, some sources in Afghanistan, uh, that led to this exclusive, really, about the National Museum in Afghanistan in Kabul, claiming a 1,200-year-old Hebrew prayer book at the Museum of the Bible was stolen from their collection in the 90s. And it appears it, you know, changed hands and, and ended up at the Museum of the Bible. And so, um, as you noted, this doesn't necessarily mean, in our view, that the Museum of the Bible is bad. I, I, as we know, from this report, as well as others in, on your side and magazines out there that have been covering the Museum of the Bible, they jumped into a lot of collecting of these artifacts and in a new way, in a big way. And it seems that, you know, there was, they've admitted there was some naivete here and there, and they've tried to make things right. So it'll be interesting to see how, how that plays out for this particular artifact. But the, uh, the Green family and the Museum of the Bible seems to be over time trying to uh, to do things in the right way regarding artifacts from the ancient world and the biblical, you know, biblical archaeology. Well, that's right. In fact, um, I, I think I may have even mentioned uh, to you and maybe to our listeners, Paul, that uh, I visited with the Green family in Oklahoma City way back in the day at their Hobby Lobby headquarters, long before the Museum of the Bible was a reality, to see some of their uh, artifacts. They were um, they were just kind of getting into the collecting, and Steve Green uh, admitted, uh, has admitted multiple times that he was naive, that he trusted the wrong people, and that uh, I think it's fair to say that um, that the Green family and the Museum of the Bible in some ways uh, were just as much a victim uh, as anyone else. And I think it shows a a lot of integrity that they are trying to make this right, even though it's probably going to cost them a whole lot of money uh, to end up making it right, even more money than they've already spent. But uh, Paul, I wanted to uh, switch gears just a little bit, still on this story, uh, but I want to... bring out something that I think is unique to Religion Unplugged in your coverage. You mentioned that you had Gil Zohar report this story, a Jerusalem-based reporter. Uh, talk to me about how he finds a story like this and uh, how you guys vet it, how you found Gil, and um, how what gives you the confidence to write a, to publish a story like this on your site? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Warren. So our site, you know, we have a lot of people we know through our networks in journalism uh, around the world, but also sometimes people find us. They like the work we're doing. 
And I think that was the case for Gil. Uh, I got an email a couple of years ago and he sent me his, I asked for his resume. And, um, you know, Gil's someone who grew up in Toronto, has lived in Israel for a long time, has done a lot of journalism for the Jerusalem Post and other publications and uh, that I could analyze. And um, he had, he has good ideas. He's also a tour guide and uh, is just very clued in to a lot of the news flow uh, and, and sort of feature story ideas in Israel and, the, and to the region. And sometimes he comes up with big exclusives for us, like like this one. And in this case, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, he had one of the sources, he had many sources in the story. One of them was anonymous, but I and my colleagues know who the source is. And so we function like a professional newsroom vetting both the writers that we use as well as the sources they use and the ideas they come up with. And um, that, I think, allows us to have this reach around the world and to come up sometimes with stories that, like this one I call a really uh, an Indiana Jones or perhaps a Carmen Sandiego kind of story with, you know, international intrigue around artifacts and uh, uh, provenance of those artifacts. Yeah, it's a really great story, and I uh, do commit it to you. And also, by the way, for those of us, our listeners that are interested, you guys have an international reporting fund that will fund this kind of international journalism uh, around the world, and we'll say a little bit more about that later in the program. But now, Paul, I'd like to pivot in our conversation and talk about another story, which also highlights another, what I might call, core competency of Religion Unplugged, the story is about a group of kids at the Kinks College who are kind of using this uh, COVID uh, quarantine time to build community in new ways. And one of the things that I really liked about that story, aside from the story itself, is that it was written by a student. And that's one of the things that you guys do at Religion Unplugged is that you uh, take the extra time that is sometimes required to nurture new students along in their uh, writing and in the writing craft. Say about say more about this story and about this writer. Yeah. Uh, so this story came to me by way of a colleague, Dr. Bob Carl, who teaches uh, classes in our religion theological studies department at King's. And Bob is a jur- good journalist and writer himself, so he spots good stories for us. And um, it's by a, this one is by a student named David Hancock, who uh, took a class with me about a year ago, and I recognize as a very, I think, intelligent young man and a good writer. And, uh, you know, the class assignment was to write about, I think, religion during the pandemic. Uh, and, and so David reported on essentially his own church and group of friends and uh, that used to attend a church called Apostles Brooklyn. And he writes about how as that church, like many in today's world, you know, went online during the pandemic, how, what happened to the students? And what was fascinating is, you know, someone might guess that young people would fall away from church during uh, such a time. But he, he uh, discovered that the students who were already living together, quarantining, and, you know, according to the code from our school in New York City, they uh, started watching church together and creating their own sort of house church and having their own music and instruments and cooking together and how that was essentially like the uh, early church, the early New Testament, and how, you know, his group of friends, I think, learned something about their faith and about uh, Christianity being lived in community, maybe uh, maybe even uh, deeper than, than before the pandemic. 
Well, you know, one of the things that I like about that story is that it is his own story. I mean, David Hancock is writing about something that he's going through, but it's not just, uh, and I hate to uh, maybe put it this way, it's not just navel-gazing. It's not just all about me, so to speak. He does some really good reporting and and, and kind of, uh, you know, gives the reader uh, a sense of uh, bigger ideas and not just a selfie moment, I guess you could say. Absolutely. Yeah, there is some, like you said, reporting. And that's what we love in pieces like this one. And, and you know, uh, for example, I liked a paragraph that talked about what this means and that, you know, millennials are many, we know broader society, more, many millennials are, are, are kind of declining in, in their faith or church attendance. But they're also, he showed stats from Barna Group that showed uh, uh, one in five young Christians said they were feeling lonely, quote, all the time. Uh, 19% of 18 to 35-year-olds said friends are missing from their worship communities. And um, and and then the broader uh, discussion of digital natives and Gen Z Americans, you know, feeling uh, a need for community. So, in one sense, I think this piece, yeah, like it, like you say, it wasn't a selfie. It was just a nice piece of reporting and offered hope, I think, to millennials who are uh, Christian believers or maybe those looking for some kind of community about how they might try to develop it uh, through their through their friends to look for friendship uh, through through church in some way. Yeah. Well, which is not to say that the rise of the nuns, the people that are unaffiliated, is not a very real phenomenon. It certainly is. And um, you've got a story about that um, idea as well uh, recently at Religion Unplugged. It's a story that uh, really focuses, though, on the black church. Uh, And, you know, uh, our mutual friend, Anthony Bradley, is fond of telling me whenever I see him that, you know, whenever I'm talking about Tim Keller and John Tyson and all of these uh, kind of new arrivals uh, to New York City and and the growth of the evangelical church, um, Anthony Bradley will say, yeah, but, you know, the black church has been here for generations, been here for centuries, faithful, and um, d- doing the Lord's work, and let's not forget about them. This study really looks at the black church and sees some encouraging things, but also some, I guess you could say, troubling things as well. Tell me about that story, Paul. Uh, the story was based on was from Pew Research, and I think it coincides with, you know, Black History Month, but also a PBS series that just came out by Henry Louis Gates called The Black Church. And like you said, I think it points to uh, essentially a testimony of the Black Church in America uh, and what it's accomplished and what it what it means, what it stands for. And so the, the piece by Maddie Townsend, who's uh, also a King student and an intern with us, looks at how, you know, secularization, of course, affects the Black church as it does the rest of the church. But interestingly, uh, I think 97%, it says that 97% of Black Americans claim to believe in God or another higher power compared to 90% of the public overall. And that was from a survey of 8,600 Black adults that Pew studied with this survey. So, you know, there's the fabric of Christianity and religion in the black experience in America is, uh, is just, you know, it's, it's woven so tightly together. And perhaps there's something that, uh, that, uh, other Christians can learn from, uh, their brothers and sisters from the, the black community. 
Yeah, no question about it. But it also said that about a fifth of black Americans are no longer affiliated with a religion, even if they might happen to believe in God. And um, I just uh, wonder uh, whether that is a phenomenon of the black church, which I don't think it is, as a matter of fact, but a phenomenon of the church as a whole. And I also wonder, Paul, if, uh, and I don't know if, uh, I didn't see it in the in your article. I'm wondering if it's in the Pew Research itself. Is to, uh, you know, I wonder if some of these, kids that are, you know, disaffiliating with the church might reaffiliate with the church later on. That's one of the deficiencies I've always found in these kinds of studies is that, you know, they don't um, really look too closely into just the idea that a lot of young people are transient and they haven't found a home yet. They're still moving around, jobs uh, hopping and home hopping as well. Yeah. And well, it's, it's a great point and, and a question and something to think about for, uh, you know, different faith groups in America. And, you know, the study does point to tensions around secularization. And the Henry Louis Gates program, the second episode, shows how, you know, the rap and hip hop uh, movement in recent decades, in some ways, was a uh, an effort by some uh, young Black men, especially, to become a different kind of preacher and to, you know, do something separate from the church. And, of course, you know, uh, I've personally talked to an Uber driver the other day who had a cross in, in her in the car, and I, I said I complimented the cross and asked about her faith experience and uh, discovered, you know, well, I'm, I grew up in the church. I'm sort of Christian, but I'm also sort of this and sort of that. I believe in God and everything, you know. And I think the Pew Research got to that a little bit, too, that there's some, you know, some tensions pulling on, on the Black church around that sort of 15 to 30 year old segment and how do they stay involved and engage with the church? And maybe part of it is how do they come back to the church? And are, you mentioned Anthony Bradley, my colleague at Kings, and he, if he's someone worth following on Twitter and uh, reading his books, but he writes about the importance of family and black fatherhood. And, uh, you, you know, that being a key for, you know, of course, for all churches to focus on, but the black church, it, it's, Focusing on family life is really important, really key to people flourishing. And, and uh, you know, maybe that points to some thoughts or ideas worth reporting on further regarding this data, these the, the numbers from Pew about the church. Yeah. Well, and I just want to reiterate what you said about Anthony Bradley's Twitter feed. I fo- I've been following Anthony for years. Mainly, I started because he's a friend. And, uh, you know, it's just I like to know what my friends are up to. But I will say that uh, uh, what he posts on his Twitter feed as related to the black fatherhood is really fantastic stuff. Uh, he he curates that content really carefully. Sometimes they're very, very inspiring stories, and he usually has something really smart to say about them as well. So let me just second that notion and recommend to all of our listeners that they need to go find Anthony. Or Dr. Anthony Bradley, I think, is the way he is on Twitter. Well, Paul, let me um, pivot one more time and let, let kind of bring our, our time together towards an end and talk about another story on religion unplugged about coming from Kenya. It's about a Christian sect that is kind of a I guess the the fancy theological word would be syncretic or syncretistic, where they it's this group that kind of takes Christian ideas but sort of grafts in a lot of um, native uh, ideologies and religions and worldviews into it as well. And um, it's just a really remarkable story, 
Tell me about that story. Yeah, this one is by, I mean, I love talking about our writers who do these stories. So uh, this one is by Thomas Sancho, who's a friend in Nairobi. He's a seasoned journalist who's written for The Nation and other publications. He does some work for the United Nations there, too. Uh, Anyways, Tom, um, uh, you know, found this feature about something called Kit Mekai, a popular, you know, religion of sorts. Uh, And he tells us about a man who takes a journey to visit some shrines to the archangel Michael. Uh, And apparently there's other shrines like it for, you know, Mary and Joseph, etc. And this guy he writes about, uh, one of the characters in the story, spends five days at this shrine. And so it's uh, kind of an unusual twist, like you say, on Christianity, uh, where there's a fusion of Christian belief with tradition, maybe some traditional African practices. And, you know, while this is a a folks on a particular uh, branch of that there in Kenya, you know, there are some similarities to other splinters or Christian sects in other parts of Africa, too, from South Africa to Kenya and beyond. Well, you know, Paul, one of the things that I really liked about this story was that it was that it was very deeply reported and very vividly told without being judgmental about these practices one way or the other. But they allowed the Christian reader to really think, I think, deeply about some important questions uh, about, uh, for example, whether the rise of Christianity that uh, has been talked about so much in the global South uh, is really a biblical Christianity or not. Um, You know, whether when we see numbers, for example, about Kenya, which has about 50 million people, that it's overwhelmingly Christian, well, what does that really mean? Um, Does it mean that, uh, you know, they believe the same things that that they believe in the local Presbyterian church uh, here in North Carolina, or does it mean that they believe something else? And those questions were kind of embedded in this story. Uh, There was not a judgment one way or the other, but they were, at least to my way of reading that story, were kind of unavoidable and helped me uh, to really kind of get at those questions in a non-judgmental way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this story illustrates the yeah, there's a, certainly a spiritual hunger all over the over the all over the world, and 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 definitely in Africa. And Africa is a place that has contributed to ancient Christianity, the Desert Fathers, and uh, you know, in so many ways. And so, I agree with you that Tom he didn't judge; he just reported and just showed. And I think personally, when we travel to different parts of the world and interact with other, you know, Christian people or people from other faiths completely, it's important. You know, for me to remember that, you know, um, Christianity isn't just an American thing. It's a global thing, historically broad, geographically broad. And I can listen and learn from others and also, yeah, to be careful about judging. Now, that being said, it's also important to see where people are taking theology or practices too in that process. Uh, I uh, had an experience once in South Africa with one of our journalism friends, wanted us to go to their church. While we were there, uh, and, and you know, there were certain practices in the church. There's branches of this church in Nigeria, South Africa, London, etc. And there's some reporting about financial mismanagement of this church. And I found that on the internet and had a discussion with them with my friend about it. And but I went to the church and um, actually met the pastor afterward and just asked questions about you know his background and what he was teaching and um, in a, in a really open way. 
And later I found out months later that just our visit and just the questions that my, my, uh, myself and my, our board member from Nigeria asked during our chat with the pastor actually caused him to, uh, uh, to have worries and to, uh, you know, our friend ended up leaving the church because th- that whole experience of her bringing us as guests caused some light to be revealed in, in her eyes and maybe others from the church. And so I think with Religion Unplugged, we're trying to report and understand. And we see that's an, an important role in and of itself, you know, to try to do that rather than to come, you know, it's comparative religion rather than comparison of religious experience. It's trying to report and understand before trying to judge. And I think Tom did a great job of that here. Well, I think you did too. It's a really great story. And I've got to say, unfortunately, Paul, with that, we've got to bring our time to a close. But I did want to let everybody know that if you want to read more about any of the stories uh, that we've discussed today, you can go to religionunplugged.com. If you'd like to give to Religion Unplugged's International Reporting Fund, there's a link at the top of that page. And of course, at Ministry Watch, we post all of our stories as well. That's ministrywatch.com. And uh, you can, if you choose, uh, donate to us as well. But even if you don't donate to either of our organizations, please know that you're reading our stories and, and sharing our stories with others on social media is also a great way that you can help our ministries to grow and to become exposed to other people. Uh, the producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. Here at Ministry Watch, we get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. I'd like to thank my guest host today, uh, Religion Unplugs leader, Paul Gladder, for joining me on today's program. Paul, thanks so much, and I hope the ministry at Religion Unplugged continues to flourish. Thanks, Warren. Yep, I'm Warren Smith, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.